0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Critical Childhood and Youth Studies Collective podcast. And I'm very excited to be talking to Dr. Peggy Frewer today, who is Reader in Anthropology at um, Brunel University, London. My name is Gunjan, and I'm an ASRC postdoctoral fellow at the Department of Education at Brunel. And my work has been on Adivasi identities in India areas of civil unrest, so in the Vidar region of Maharashtra, bordering Chhattisgarh, where Peggy has been working, and my postdoctoral work is on rural youth identities uh, in India, so I'm very excited to be chatting with Peggy Peggy today on shared interests, common interests, but also the overlaps in our work and research, and also to find out more about Peggy's work um, on, you know, in anthropology, but also rural lives and livelihoods and her uh, more recent um, works in education and young people's engagement with education and entanglements with work and livelihood. So welcome and thank you Peggy for joining us today.
1: Thank you very much Kunjun, it's a pleasure to be here and I look forward to our discussion. Yes. For my postdoctoral work, um, I I maintain that focus but I was was more interested in um, how Hindu nationalist ideologies were inculcated in schools and were, you know, picked up, understood um, uh, by by young people through educational settings. And so, I shifted my focus to the school, my ethnographic anthropological focus to educational institutions. Um, and in particular, I, I uh, for my one-year postdoctoral project, I was based in a Saraswati Shishumandir uh, in um, a sort of peri-urban. Area again in 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 Chhattisgarh, where I uh, I was sort of um, examining, looking, um, observing how Hindu um, nationalist ideologies are are um, inculcated in in the school setting. At the same time, I, I I lived again in in the rural Adivasi village that I um, had been working in at this stage now for going on my third year, fourth year. Um, uh, and, and spent two days a week in the in the in the urban peri urban setting school setting, so this sort of was the segue between my original research um, on sort of ethno religious relations and and nationalism within rural Adivasi communities and education and young people, and then from this uh, uh, research and experience um, sort of opened up my 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 broader focus and and now ongoing focus on children young people, schooling and education um, and, and so that's the sort of I suppose trajectory of my anthropological research and and, and the interests I, I sustain and carry on engaging in in respect of uh, childhood youth uh, and and in some ways more prominently education learning and schooling
0: Excellent. So, yeah. that's that's very very interesting and I think we'll, we'll return to these intersections of religion, and the the ethno-religious relations amongst the Adiwasi communities, um, and, you know, the broader intersections with education and schooling later on in the podcast. But what I wanted to ask you from the introduction was then, uh, what drives and sort of motivates this work um, and interest, you know, with marginalized communities, this work on rural lives and livelihoods? How is this driven and motivated, given this recent push towards urban spaces and sustainable and smart cities. So what, what have been the main drivers and motivations of doing this work in rural context?
1: There's absolutely a sort of uh, um, motivation or, or drive toward it or, or in growing interest um, but from academics, from scholars in urban spaces, urban settings. But also, obviously, there's a drive um, from a kind of rural urban uh, ongoing migration uh, patterns which are ongoing you know for decades of course generations um, but against that kind of backdrop and, and in some ways that's sort of increased um, more rapidly perhaps in the last oh three decades or so mean, um, one can argue over the kind of time scale here but but certainly in 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 my uh, uh, experience of research it's certainly increased the sort of rapidity and urbanization um, and and spread of urban spaces into rural contexts. In spite of that, or against that backdrop, um, India's rural population still far exceeds its urban population, and and indeed, India's marginalized, impoverished, very largely rural communities are still uh, 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 much more sort of prevalent, prominent, and and certainly in terms of just basic demographics, uh, far more um, uh, 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 far more sort of prominent throughout the country than than indeed urban areas. So I suppose in all of my research, my attempt, and I'm kind of motivated by um, an attempt to understand this ongoing marginality, understand um, a kind of the, the ongoing comparative poverty within these communities, in spite of the uh, rapid patterns of urbanization in spite of the opportunities, in spite of the, you know, so-called um, smart cities and um, drive toward affluence in spite of India's broader, you know, uh, kind of ec- economic growth. These marginalized, very rural and and, and, and um, uh, rural forested um, so-called backward areas. And I use th- that term quite um, Critically, I also use it very carefully. Um, I also use it as an ethnographic term because the people I work with themselves use this this idea, this notion of backwardness. Um, But these communities are being ignored and they are not um, uh, able to take advantage of of the kind of um, growth, urbanization and, and, and opportunities that are uh, that accompany this sort of growth. So I suppose this is really at the heart of my research: understanding this kind of ongoing marginality um, uh, through, in, in in my case, through the lens of education um, and youth, um, in order to well, ultimately try and um, uh, do something about this.
0: Absolutely, I think that's that's a very important point about understanding marginality because a lot of the research that takes place with the marginalized communities in rural settings is also about policy impact, it's a policy rollout. So it's less about understanding, more about finding solutions to this backwardness, so to speak. It's about how do you bring people into the mainstream, the so-called mainstream. So I think this this exercise of understanding becomes then very, very important um, to your work with the Adi community.
1: Yes, absolutely. And that's I mean um, coming from the perspective of an anthropologist, I think that's one of the important. Uh, uh, why, why such um, having this sort of background, this sort of anthropological background, social science background more generally, is we are trained to to you know that that is our remit to understand the perspectives and experiences of of the other of of others, and we yeah. we aren't going in to impose our policy. That is not our remit. We are going to try and understand the perspectives and lived experiences of the people we work with and alongside in order to uh, try and make sense of their yeah. uh, ongoing poverty, their ongoing marginality. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, in the face of these opportunities and in the face of these, um, uh, of, of this economic drive and economic growth, what, what is going on here? Why why isn't this, you know, seeping down, trickling down? Why aren't uh, the people I, I work with um, seizing these opportunities on the one, yeah. why aren't these opportunities made available to them, why why aren't they being able to access them? On paper, they are um, um, in terms of policymaking uh, remit, um, they should be, but 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 they are not able to. And and you know the question is why? Is it because of their education? Is it because they lack aspiration? Is it is it something to do with broader structural um, constraints? So. That is really what I'm after in terms of...
0: Very interesting. I think there's also an epistemological point there because all of this then brings it into recognition, these communities. I mean, the knowledges, like you were saying, have been ignored historically. The kind of their ways of uh, navigating everyday lives and absolutely been ignored. So it's, it also brings it into epistemic recognition. So there's a, a broader epistemological... A point is what you do, but has this work been uh, challenging, you know, but the, the difficulties of working in rural, hard to reach remote uh, contexts. So or what are the difficulties? What are the challenges of doing um, the, the work and research that you do? Oh, many. <laughs> um,
1: yes, th- it is challenging, both practically and, and you know, physically challenging, Um but also it's challenging uh, sort of in terms of more, um, oh, in relation to, to, I suppose, more abstract or, or um, uh, well, non-practical ways. So just to address the kind of practical challenges initially. Initially, the challenge of course was language. Um, and I spent many months learning um, uh, sort of elementary Hindi in my pre-PhD days and uh, arrived with a, you know, a basic level of, of vocabulary and grammar, um, and couldn't speak a word really. So, I spent many, many months initially in my uh, initial two year field work just learning how to communicate um, and discovered they don't actually speak Hindi in rural Chhattisgarh. They speak um, Chhattisgarh, Chh- uh, they speak what they call Chetriboli, and they speak Kuruk. So, I I angst for several months over, well, what am I going to do with this Hindi, and then uh, before coming to the conclusion that, okay, I can, Hindi can become a kind of link language between all of these, Um, but I ended up also learning some Kuruk and learning to speak in the Chetri, Chattisgari dialect. So that was a very kind of practical, urgent challenge that I eventually overcame. Um, i am by no means fluent in any of these languages in the slightest but i do somehow manage to communicate and and a reasonably good job at this um i have very understanding and generous um, interlocutors and friends and and what i absolutely consider to be family in rural Chhattisgarh, who are very patient and um and kind so so language i you know i i've overcome the communication barrier um through various sometimes amusing and and and, and other means um, other practicalities, um, yes. There, there's sort of, you know, the the when I when I initially started doing fieldwork in this area, uh, the village was located a four-hour bus or or jeep ride over a very sort of unpaved, uh, rough, dirt road um, through the jungle. Three or four years later, when I began my postdoctoral work, this road was paved, and so this four-hour journey became two. So that was um, that was a blessing in many ways, because simply uh, um, just just I, I I would visit the city every two or three weeks or so during my initial Ph.D. fieldwork to visit the post office and and uh, purchase supplies and things. And it was a um, it was a kind of arduous journey. And and sometimes the bus didn't run and sometimes I got stuck and sometimes I wasn't able to go. Um, um, so that was sort of a little bit challenging. Um Particularly as I I was a young female researcher, and and the trips to the city uh, were a way for me to you know make contact with friends and family back home, and we would plan. Okay, I will call you on this date. (laughs) We will set set a time, and then I wasn't able to, and they would become worried, and I would become frustrated. So just overcoming those kind of emotional, mental, practical challenges that was quite challenging. Um, That seems like a very kind of privileged uh, (laughs) state, you know, um, challenge to to. To, to address, but it, it was kind of very, very kind of emotionally challenging at the time. Um, there was no internet. Again, phone calls were very, very expensive. This was back in the day of um, you had to book an SDD call. And so it was all very sort of, it, it took a lot of logistical planning. And so when I couldn't get to the city, that was, that was um very, very frustrating. But fast forward four years later, the road had been paved. Um, internet had been, uh just about functioning in this area, I'm trying to recall, early 2000, 2003, 2004. Yes. So that made communication a little bit easier. Um, but the, the practicalities the practicalities of just traveling between villages and, and during the postdoctoral stage, I recall I mentioned I was traveling from the village to the Satoswati their school in, in the city. Um, and I was doing a kind of regular trip two, day, two days a week. Um, for that period, I actually purchased a moped, which was... <laughs> both gave me um uh, transport more transport sort of independence and access and and more rel- reliable transport so that was um that was a blessing um that said the village headman who was sort of the you know village patriarch was very uncomfortable with letting me a single woman travel alone 40 50 kilometers um through the jungle to to the to the city so he insisted i take what he called a chauffeur so i had a driver for my moped which was a young a young man from the village one of you know part of my extended village family um and he drove me every week we would um uh, go for two days we would spend one night he would go off with spend a night with his cousins and i would um stay in a local hotel because i went to the school two days a week two two full solid days so i needed to be there for that but but just um <laughs> uh accommodating that was was an interesting again often amusing slightly challenging experience but um I wanted to respect the the village headman's, you know, uh, uh, wishes and concerns, um, and in, indeed it was safer when I had a um, uh, someone with me. So, um, and then other sort of practical issues, you know, living in in rural um, villages that were not connected to the electricity grid, no phone, uh, no running water. You know, these are all sort of practical challenges we get used to. Um, they're they're much less comfortable now as i've um you know two going on two and a half decades later as i'm older and um <laughs> uh, uh, that that remains slightly challenging to navigate around um the sort of um general living contexts but um but that's just part of of field work and part of you know part of the broader realities of um of a rural non-electrified um uh village setting more shifting gears here and talking about other challenges, I think perhaps all of these practical challenges aside, perhaps one of the biggest challenges I continue to face are issues related to sort of power and social relations. Um, I'm a white woman coming from the West, highly educated, and from their standards, very, very rich. Um, from the standards of my own, you know, middle class UK standards, I'm, I'm I'm not particularly rich. I'm just very comfortably middle class. But I'm extremely wealthy, so trying to now, na- as far as they are concerned, so trying to kind of navigate and these sorts of um, subject position issues or status that 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 I hold in relation to working with extremely impoverished, very marginalised people, um, and striking a fine balance between um, in that context has been um, it, it is challenging. Um, you know where to intervene, how to intervene, um, where to, in what ways to support. Um, can I support various endeavors, whether it's um, educational support or um, medical support that I might provide, or financial support in, in, in different ways? And the issues, and tensions, and 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 power that are all attached to to these sorts of uh, hierarchies. These this can be very very complicated. Um, and then trying to navigate all this while respecting local norms and practices and 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 other you know statuses, dignity. So so I find that very um an ongoing challenge um and and, and need to really continue kind of approaching it and monitoring it and navigating it with with great care. But having worked there now, sort of and I've been associated with the village of being um being really part of the village for now going on, again, two and a half decades, um, I, I feel I, I, I'm able to you know, understand and navigate these, these challenges reasonably well.
0: That's so fascinating. I mean, I remember during my doctoral research, for the longest time during the fieldwork, I considered myself to be an insider, quote-unquote insider. But there were all these power relations, the social relations that had to be navigated which had impacts on my mobility and movement in the village. So, like you, I had I had someone who was, you know, sort of deputed to take me around the villages because they were like, "Oh, you were a young single woman; you, you shouldn't be going around." So they would tell me where to go and who to meet. So it it had impacts for who I spoke to, who was included in my research, but at the same time, the the gatekeepers, the, the sort of the panchayat members, the village council members were very active in telling me, you know, who who is it that I should be talking to? Where is it? Which shops should I be going to? Which shops should I be buying uh, food or water from? So... Um, Absolutely,
1: yeah. yeah. No, because it does have implications. If you go to this shop, which is owned, for example, in my in, in, in the village where I work, it's three quarters Hindu uh, adivasi and, and a quarter Christian adivasi. It was roughly um, 800. It's a very small village. Uh, uh 800 850 uh, population and so it, it does have implications if you shop at the you know the Hindu owned shop then you're declaring yeah. your allegiance um if you shop at the Christian owned shop you're you're stating you're making a statement um if you have dinner at this house versus that one if you have tea yeah. and and oh, all of these behaviors and, and decisions and practices have serious sort of implications which it took me a very long time to learn you know the politics yeah. The village, the power relations, the internal uh, village uh, politics. It it took a good, well, many, many months, if not uh, over a year. And that's one um, sort of uh, thing, one of the reasons, traditionally at least, anthropologists spend many, many months. And in my case, it was two years living Mm. with with the people and in the context in which their uh, research is taking place. In order to learn and understand these kinds of relationships, these kinds of power and status relations and rules and uh, not only just to understand them but to um to learn how to abide by them to respect them um and and to understand the ramifications if 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 one doesn't respect these um and and i made many many mistakes from from day one which Mm. i which i you know took in some cases many months to sort of rectify in terms of I you know for uh, uh, one big mistake I made was I did not go and present myself to the village headman who was my sort of main gatekeeper for my field work um I had done everything else in terms of the legal requirements of you know getting my research visa going to the FRO and registering my 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 presence in this region um you know taking all the kind of official legal boxes um um, so I, you know, I had full permission to sort of be in this area and stay here, but I didn't pay respects to the village headman upon my arrival. Mm. That was a serious, serious mishap on my part. And it took months for me to sort of rectify this because, um, you know, he then rightly said, I don't know who she is. She hasn't come to see me. Please oh, don't God. come to her. She may or may not be a dangerous person. She may or may not be a missionary. We don't know what she's doing. So steer clear. and When I realized my error, which was within weeks, I um, then had to slowly (laughs) claw my way back, you know, into his good graces and visit (laughs) chat. And I spent endless, endless hours, days Mm. uh, with the village headman. And he's, you know, since become a very close interlocutor. And we, indeed, we laugh about this now. (laughs) My, at the time. So all of these sorts of, you know, I I had to learn how to be a respectable person in this village. I had to learn the rules. Um, And it took a very long time because they're not obvious. They're not, they're not visible. They're not explicit. You know, I wasn't given a kind of sheet saying, right, first, you must present yourself to the village headman. Second, you must not go here or you must go there. Uh, you must wear this. You must not behave in that way. Many, many rules. And, you know, I, I can laugh about it now. Um, <sighs> I puzzle over some of them still. Um, and I, you know, fondly remember others and my whole sort of, navigational approach to understanding and, and abiding by them.
0: But. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. bruno brings back a lot, a lot of memories about, about the navigation of these, the, the power relations and social relations in these contexts of doing research. I think one last question before we end this part and then move on to the second part of the podcast. So you've, you've spoken about some of the, the methodological and ethical challenges of doing work in a rural context with marginalized communities what have been some of the theoretical challenges of doing this work? Because you're working with communities that have been historically marginalized, subordinated, and through the knowledge frameworks, you know, that could somewhat be contested. And you've written about these dominant frames of modernity and development and how these they frame um, the marginalized communities. So theoretically, what have been the challenges of doing this work or curizing this work when you're writing about it?
1: Theoretically, I think I'll just I'll just pick two issues that that um, that even now I must be sensitive to and, and, and kind of drive my approach in to researching in these communities. And one is about development and one is about education. So in relation to development, for example, um, I also uh, in my university um, position, I also teach on Um, this subject matter as well, uh, uh, um, critical perspectives to international development. And so I take a very kind of critical anthropological approach to development, um, dissecting the very categories in the first instance, you know, what is poverty? What is development? Uh, Is it a good thing? And and why not? And why do anthropologists and theorists and and many, many scholars and academics, um, why do they take such a critical approach? And, and what you know in terms of historically uh the, the north and the south or the uh, first world and the third world or the um yeah the global north and the global south and the categories themselves change and they're all contested and they're all extremely problematic problematic and who are we to say what is uh underdeveloped and, and what needs to be developed and, and and given our kind of long history of of you know which which is really a sort of colonial relationship as well which is historically extremely problematic so there's this kind of theoretical context of very you know critical um sort of unpacking and critical engagement with the discourse on the one hand which is which which i teach and engage in with my students and indeed drawn in my own writing on the other hand on the ground i work in in a in a village in a in a with very marginalized extremely dispossessed people, some of the most marginalised, you know, in, in India in terms of the category they belong to uh, scheduled tribe or Adivasi in rural India, who very much buy into, in many ways, this development discourse that we are so critical of. They want, they welcome and want, um, uh, uh, you know, what we might call development. They want intervention. They want to have access to the kinds of things um uh developing countries and more developed communities take adva- take 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 for granted they have no problem with and, and and think it's sort of daft that that we you know what they what they might say overthink all of this um for them poor is poor they are impoverished uh people who who lack access to so-called development and so what is the problem and so i find that very i always find that very um very tricky to navigate in terms of my own theoretical approach and, and, and understanding and and you know and, and writing about this. On the one hand, I am very critical of this of these discourses. On the other hand, um, I work with extremely poor people who poverty is is almost a very black and white thing to them. You know, and it's to do with very base level um, sort of s- sustainability. It's to do with hunger and and um, the next meal and a roof over their heads. Um, it's also to do with um, issues related to aspiration and, and to future opportunities, and, and their poverty prevents them from accessing these. So it's it's not a nuanced thing for for the people I work with. So that's one challenge I continue to face and grapple with. Um, another one is, is to do with education. Again, discourses around education and, and the kind of very strong, very prominent assumption that education is a good thing and that's a very prominent assumption within development discourses it's, it's it's a prominent assumption within um education studies and 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 just sort of social sciences of edu- of and around education um and i went in as an early you know phd researcher into this area um almost missionizing about education education is a good thing you must send your children to school why aren't you sending your children to school you must it's so important um You know, I was, I was, I I I had those assumptions and I and I took excuse me, I took those assumptions with me. And it took the full, well, a a year or so of of living and researching in this village, a good couple of years of my initial research to understand why, again, from local experiences and perspectives, why they didn't think education was such a good thing, why they pulled their children out of school after class three, class four, why they thought after class three, class four, maybe class five that the children had had enough education and understanding the reasons behind this. And, and again, they're, these are related back to their um, sort of impoverished marginalized status. They understood that education is indeed a good thing and can lead to many, many opportunities, but not for them. Um, in fact, it's pretty pointless for them to get an education beyond, you know, class three, class four, the, these, um, this assumptions, I hasten to add have, have sort of changed over the past couple of decades um instead of going to up to class three class four class five uh people in the village young people in the village are generally getting educated to class nine or ten and and indeed class twelve and in many still slightly exceptional circumstances beyond but broadly speaking they they hold that you know while they recognize that education is fundamentally a good thing, they also are very much aware of and insist that um but not for people like us and it took me. A very long time to understand that and to marry those that tension and, and to understand that tension and, and to try and get beyond this and this is indeed is what is continues to frame my research understanding the tension between discourses that you know that laud uh um processes of say development on one hand education on the other um marry these up and understand that tension between that and lived experiences and perspectives on the ground so i suppose those are sort of the, I guess, intellectual theoretical challenges I continue to face.
0: That's very, very important, actually, because, you know, raises questions and sort of bringing out those, the contradictions and dissonances and tensions that you're talking about within these demands for education and development. But at the same time, the more, you know, the instrumental, the utilitarian um, idea of education, that education should lead to jobs and um, all of that, the other things that, We are, when we're theorizing this work, we're challenging those dominant discourses. But at the same time, the communities that we work with are very much interpolated, so to speak. They embody these dominant discourses. And um, these don't go unchallenged or uncontested, but at the same time, there's very strong articulate demands for education and development that even I found during my um, doctoral research and now in my postdoctoral work as well. So thank you, uh, Peggy, for raising these questions and bringing out these tensions for us. Um, we'll end the first part of the podcast here. And for more details and insights into your latest work on education and, you know, the youth engagement, young people's engagements with education and entanglements with work and livelihood. Um, we'll move on to the second part of the pod- podcast. So Thank you, Peggy. And thank you everyone for joining us. Thank you.